Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in the book of John called Reasons to Believe. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 2, 18 to 25, as we hear a message called Worship and Faith. The day when Jesus first threw the money changers out of the temple, well, that must have been quite a day. It was Passover in old Jerusalem, and for them, Passover was a much bigger deal than our Christmas. Money changers were standing by, changing your secular money into temple money and making a profit in the process. Then there were the sacrificial animals sold at inflated prices. All Israel showed up. Everyone who had an extra bedroom in Jerusalem rented it out and charged on the basis of supply and demand. People selling food and lodging were doing well, and the temple was in full swing. Soon the sacrifices would begin, and people would meet with their families and recount the story of the exodus from Egypt. It was Passover time in Old Jerusalem. But on this day, a new preacher, Jesus from Nazareth, had showed up and created an uproar in a city that was already bedlam. He had kicked over the tables of the money changers in the temple court of the Gentiles, and the money was flying about everywhere. Doves were thrown out of their cages, sheep were running everywhere and bleating, as one man with a whip was demanding that the practice of merchandising stop. This was a temple, after all, not a house of commerce. It was supposed to be murmurs of prayers, not shouts of sellers advertising special deals on sheep that had been certified by the priests and therefore eligible for sacrifice. And at the center of it all was one man whose passion for worship and for the house of God was fervent, Some would say fanatical. I wonder if you've ever noticed how popular Jesus has always been. Imagine if you're a pilgrim going to Jerusalem during the high season of Passover. It was always an expensive time of year. You'd close down your business. You'd book time off from work, no income during Passover week. And then you would book a place to stay either in Jerusalem or in a neighboring small village. But room and board was expensive. But then again, what could you do? And then you would have to change your money for temple money, and and you knew you were going to get exploited. And then you would buy sacrificial animals at greatly inflated prices. You know, it's hard not to simply feel that you're being used and subjugated and exploited. Maybe Passover was important, but wow, this was a money racket. And just as you're feeling resentful, out of nowhere comes a prophet with a whip in hand, kicking over tables and chairs, and he's demanding that the temple of God should be reserved for worship, not for some crass money-making scheme. And as you see him, the first response is, well, preach it, brother. It's finally time that someone calls this crooked operation what it really is, an offense to God. And that tells you one of the reasons Jesus is so popular. He's saying aloud what so many people have been thinking. And does all that sound familiar to you? Of course it does. Most North Americans are sick of professionally religious people with private jets and mega mansions, circus-like atmosphere meant to captivate a a gullible crowd. They're tired of the promise that if you give them $1,000, God's going to multiply it and give you 10 times what you've given. They're tired of people promising them their trinkets as if their holy oil or holy water or prayer claws have some special dispensation of grace from God. They're tired of ministers telling them that if they only believe rightly, they can have it all, wealth, fame, and health, and good looks, and a fantastic love life. 
They recognize that instead of ministers bringing them to God, they've been served up hucksters and hustlers, people who have enriched themselves off of their followers, and they're sick of it. And I agree with them. I'm sick of it as well. There is no wonder that so many people have been turned off by what they call organized religion. And by the way, the next time people hear of another scandal from the professional clergy, be it the abusing of children or the misuse of funds or secret sexual trysts, is it any wonder that they're not surprised anymore? They've seen it all. That's what they now expect. After all, it's just a crooked racket. And I think that's a perfect analogy for what's happening in John chapter 2. Jesus has entered into the temple and is overthrowing all the temple merchandising items. And he's highlighting what has become a very corrupt priesthood. And he's shouting, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Amen. Preach it, brother. You see now why Jesus is so popular. He's saying what everyone's thinking. And indeed, we're still thinking it today. That's why he's still popular today. And today, as we study the end of John chapter 2, I want us to see the relationship of genuine worship to true faith. And here's why. You know, it's one thing to point out what's wrong with religion in our day. But it's quite another thing to be drawn to the one true God and to lay down your life at his feet. It's one thing to point out pretense. It's another thing to live authentically ourselves. It's far easier to call out, you're a bunch of hypocrites, than it is to come to terms with the hypocrisy in our own hearts and humbly repent and become faithful ourselves. Today, I want to look at two responses to the person of Jesus. The first response is the easiest to identify. It's the response of the religious hypocrites. But the second, well, I need to warn you, this response is more difficult. It's a response of those who cheered Jesus on the most, who even said that they believed in him. And something rather startling is said about them, and it's a bit convicting, so stay tuned. So let's take it one response at a time. Let's start to read John chapter 2, verses 16 to 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, just one word before we look at this text in detail. When in the book of John, John refers to the Jews, he's not speaking about the Jewish people as we use the term today. The Jews in John is almost always a reference to the Jewish religious leaders. He's he's speaking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the high priests. He means the Jewish religious establishment. Now, I make mention of that so that you won't think that John is anti-Jewish and read the book in the light of the the kind of anti-Semitism that we hear today. John is not condemning the Jewish people, but he is condemning the Jewish religious establishment. And that's what he means when he talks about the Jews. Try to remember that as you read. And so the Jews, the professionally religious people, after having seen Jesus drive out the money changers from the temple, demand of Jesus that he produce a sign that shows that he has the authority from God to do what he's just done. And as the legal temple authorities, they have the right to regulate the temple, to stop acts of disruption, to ask questions of credentials of anyone who's taking authority over the temple complex. I mean, after all, if if the temple becomes a free-for-all, 
in which anyone can do whatever they want, well, then the entire thing is going to quickly degenerate into chaos. You know, at first glance then, what they demand doesn't seem inappropriate at all. Instead, it's called leadership. And so they make a demand, produce your credentials. But they don't just say, produce your credentials, as if he would hand out his degree from a seminary or some board certification program. No, they didn't think that way. Instead, they said, look, if you say you're a prophet, you're going to have to prove that claim. You must produce a sign that God is on your side. And see, what they wanted was a miracle. Now, this demand for a miracle, at least for Jews, constituted legitimate evidence. And by the way, this idea that Jews demand signs to authenticate the hand of God, that's affirmed in the rest of the Bible. You might want to flip ahead to John chapter 6, verse 30. In the context of that passage is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with five barley loaves of bread and two fish. And after that, he crossed the Sea of Galilee, but the crowds looked for him and they found him. Jesus then told the crowd that they are to believe in him. And to that they replied, it's recorded in John 6.30, they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? That's incredulous. Just think about that. He's just fed 5,000 miraculously and they still want another sign. Well, Paul also mentions the Jewish demands for signs. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's to say, Every culture has culturally specific ways in which they test truth claims. And for the Jews, it was always the same one. Can this prophet produce a sign that will demonstrate his legitimacy? But as the case of the feeding of the 5,000 proves so well, it's hard to know when a sign is ever enough. And then, given that Jesus is more than able to produce any sign that he wants with ease, what would he do next? So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the Ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Newfeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. There's still a great many religious people today who are constantly begging for a sign. You know, that's why certain religious leaders make a business out of doing miracles. Of course, the general question is always, do we believe these signs? It wasn't that long ago, and I remember a religious teacher, he was famous for calling people forward he had never seen before. He'd even mention their names, and then he'd tell them what he couldn't have known, and then he would do amazing things, and he would proclaim that they were healed, and that he had a word from God for them. 
you know, it was sometime after that that a professional magician was able to show exactly what this preacher was doing and how it was done. He reproduced it using the tools of professional magicians today. He showed that the religious teacher in question was actually a fraud. Now, I mention that only to say that the ability to produce miracles might not be all that's cracked up to be. You might remember Exodus chapter 7. Moses has appeared before Pharaoh demanding that he let Israel go. And to this, according to verse 9, Pharaoh demanded, prove yourself by working a miracle. And you'll remember that Aaron threw down Moses' staff and it became a serpent. So listen now to verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. And so it seems to me that miracles can be accounted for either by a sleight of hand or perhaps as a result of cultic arts or by a legitimate action of God, the creator entering into his creation. And that's to say it requires wisdom and not gullibility to discern the meaning of miracles. Now, before I go further, let's examine the request of the religious teachers. See, on the one hand, it seems like a legitimate request. Show us your credentials to demonstrate that you're a prophet of God and have the right to upset the temple. But if you think about it, there are two glaring problems with their request. First, does God really do miracles in order to satisfy our doubting minds? I mean, Did Jesus cleanse lepers to satisfy the Pharisees' doubts about him? Well, no, he didn't. And furthermore, when the Pharisees saw him doing a miracle, well, they didn't believe. So, for instance, immediately after he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11 says that many of the Jews, remember, that means the religious establishment, well, they made an arrangement which would involve killing both Jesus and Lazarus. I guess human intrigue, jealousy, The political survival was more convincing than a rotting corpse rising from the dead. Here's a little secret. Miracles really don't convince a lot of people. So, I said, God does not do signs for the sake of sinful men, causing them to believe miracles have never done that. But secondly, notice that how clever they are, these men, they're changing the topic. The real topic is, is it really okay to turn the temple, a place dedicated to prayer and worship, into a house of commerce so that buying and selling takes precedence over devotion and worship? That's the question. But instead, they try to make the topic, can you do miracles, rather than is the leadership of the temple corrupt because, well, they've perverted worship. Well, you see, this is simply bait and switch. These men hope that no one's going to notice how quickly they're able to change the topic. Now, please notice Christ's response. You want a sign? I'll give you one. Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, by the way, that would be one whirlwind of a sign, no question about it. And if Jesus had done that sign, well, the discussion of whether he had the authority over the temple, well, that would have been established. Now, as you know, they're not going to take Jesus up on that. That's for sure. All they can now do is bluster and realize the discussion is a stalemate. But it's right here that John himself intervenes his narrative on this account. John says, don't you know, that's precisely what happened in the end. Jesus actually did that, says John. 
When he raised the temple of his body from the grave in three days, it's, it's far more difficult to raise your own dead body from the grave than it would be to build a temple in three days. You know, for some very fast building projects, you know, they might have happened like that, but who being dead has ever been able to rise from the dead? Now, before we move on, just a little note. Some of you might know that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus only spiritually was raised from the dead, that his body remained rotting in the grave. But look again what he says. He says, destroy this temple. He means destroy this body, and in three days I will raise this body. Yep, Jesus predicted that he would rise bodily. Okay, we've looked at the response of the Jewish religious leaders. They're hypocrites. They ask for a sign, but they don't want a sign. They want power. They want money. They want positions of prominence. They're not the people of God. They're hypocrites. And to get back to my theme, that's why Jesus was so popular. He pointed it out. The crowd was cheering. And that's why Jesus was so very popular. He said what everyone was already thinking. That's why we like him so well today. We love it when he dresses down hypocrites. But our account is not over. Let's read to the end of the chapter. I'm now reading John 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, please notice from verse 23 that while Jesus was in Jerusalem during this Passover, he was indeed doing miracles. But whatever his miracles were, they might have included healing the sick, but like all miracles, do they inspire faith or do they not? You know, there's an old Jewish commentary on Exodus that says something quite profound. It says, seven things are hidden from man, the day of his death, the day of consolation, the depths of judgment, one's reward the time of the restoration of the kingdom of David, the time when the guilty kingdom will be destroyed, and then, that is, the seventh and the most important thing that's hidden from man is what is within another, what's going on inside someone else. This passage says that on the first Passover, when Jesus had begun his public ministry, many were believing in him, but Jesus didn't trust them, not in the slightest. They were cheering Jesus on, but Jesus was definitely not cheering them on. Unlike the rest of us, he knew well what was in people. He understood with keen wisdom what was going on inside their hearts. So think of it this way. You know, a great many evangelicals think that the sign that someone has become a child of God is that they make a public commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. It's as if it's never occurred to some of us that none of us know what's within another. That's also why, let's say, during the Great Awakening, it's a a great revival that took place in North America in the early 1700s, many of the awakening preachers weren't at all impressed when someone confessed public faith. They thought that one could only tell if the faith was real when there was an awakening in the heart, and the supposed convert showed that he or she loved the things of God above their own sin. Well, that's completely in line with what John the Baptist had also said. Remember, he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, so you say that you're turning from sin and you're turning to Christ. Well, that's great. But let's see if your life looks like that when it's all done. 
See, that's the thing about Jesus. He didn't come to make admirers. He never came to be a superstar or to seek popularity. He came to transform the human heart. He came to give us faith in God, to bring us to the place where we would confess that not others are sinners, but that we're sinners. He didn't come to make us cheer as he shows hypocrisy in others. He came to show us our own sin so that we might become deeply concerned with our own hypocrisy. That's his mission. You can't worship and rejoice with him until you say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is what the ministry of Jesus does. It causes us to face God and then to face ourselves and then to cry out for mercy and for grace. And in the process, we're going to stop clapping when the Pharisees are shown to be frauds. Indeed, our heads are going to be bowed for we have come to believe that, well, we ourselves are also frauds. That's why Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. Only sinners who know that they are sinners actually need a savior. Only sinners who know that they're sinners actually want him. And that is the relationship between genuine worship and faith. Genuine worship comes humbly. It doesn't point the finger at others. It points the finger at ourselves. And it wants so deeply what Christ has to give. John, I'm thinking as you're speaking there, just how quick we are to sort of point out the hypocrisy of others instead of looking in the mirror at ourselves sometimes. And we, we tend to judge other people's actions. You know, I want to be gracious here, Ben, because I know that all of us have wounds within ourselves. And I know there are people that have stopped going to church because somebody, sometimes it's even leadership that has wounded them. And people who are unworthy of being leaders ended up being leaders and doing very badly at it. So all of these kind of things have come into people's hearts and it's created this dissonance between themselves and the people of God. And so it's so easy for us to say, I don't believe in organized religion anymore. After all, don't you know what organized religion has done? So I think that we need to respond to that and we need to say, listen, the, the, the movement of Jesus is to get us to face the fact that what was done to us, listen, we're all capable of doing the same. And perhaps we've only noticed what was done to us and not noticed what we have done to others. And one of the, the things that the miracle of Jesus does, it helps to point out how deeply we need grace. Thanks so much, John. And remember to come and join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. The regular gifts of our partner to tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to Tell monthly partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth and Life Today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. 
thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.